Good morning. I have to confess, I was preparing myself for a really light uh, audience today, audience, congregation, um, and I was reading. I thought, oh, this will be funny. I'll say this. Uh, um, I know how Paul feels like in Second Timothy chapter 4. He said, all have left me. Only Luke is with me. Um, <laughs> but, um, but you're all here, and that's fabulous. Um, if you have your Bibles handy, if you would turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. And the passage we're going to look at this morning is Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16, and it's the introduction to a very long section in the book of Hebrews on the high priesthood of Jesus. Um, after this, we have five chapters on the high priesthood of Jesus here. You're going to be asking for a sermon on Leviticus by the time we're done. But um, it's important to realize this section at the end of Hebrews 4 is not a, an afterthought by the writer. It's really his conclusion to chapter 4 on um, the fact that we're not to depart um, from Christ. And... Um, it introduces the subject of uh, the high priesthood of Christ to us. The, the high priesthood had been degraded in the eyes of people to a large extent at the time this was written because the Herods had pretty much taken over appointing the high priest. You'll recall from Leviticus that it was supposed to be a lifetime appointment passed on uh, through the descendants of Levi uh, but when Rome occupied Palestine, they took that right to themselves and they bestowed the high priesthood really as a patronage appointment to Roman-friendly Sanhedrin. Um, and so if you were good supporters of Rome, this was how they might reward you was with uh, being the high priest. Um, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that one appointment lasted only one day. Uh, and some appointments lasted a few months. If, if they didn't like how you were doing things, uh, you were replaced, then they would put another high priesthood in. That's why when we read the Gospels, you see the high priests and the Sanhedrin very concerned about the approval of Rome because they had that position by Roman appointment. And so... Um, Sadly, that's sort of what had become of it, but God's intent in this passage is to show us that there is a great high priest, one that it doesn't matter what Rome had done with it politically, there is a high priest who is God's appointed uh, high priest, and he perfectly fulfills uh, the role. Um, we've already seen a few times, and we're going to see several times more, the book of Hebrews has warning passages, um, warnings to believers and warnings to unbelievers, not to shrink back from Christ. There was a lot of persecution, a lot of trials, and if you were Jewish and had made a profession of faith, Judaism was a protected religion under Rome and uh, Christianity was not, and so you stepped outside of that envelope of uh, protection. You were uh, probably ostracized by your fellow Jewish people and you didn't come into Roman protection and some people might have been thinking, you know, life was a little easier before 
I joined this church, maybe I ought to go back to, to simple Judaism. And there's lots of warnings in the book of Hebrews not to do that. Um, in every congregation, of course, you've probably read the parable of the soils. There were some who were genuine believers who had made profession, and there were some who were not. And uh, both Jeff and Luke had, has mentioned this, uh, but the the thrust of many passages and the, the one we'll see this morning is don't shrink back from a full commitment to Christ. If you, if you have made a genuine profession, hold on to that. And if you're considering it, come all the way to trusting Christ. We believe at, at Grace, and I hope you do too, that the salvation of every Christian is secure. That if you've come to Christ, you will see heaven uh, one day. Um, Luke has uh, mentioned that in if you belong to a small group, we had discussion questions and he had some verses about that. I just want to remind you of a few because I think this is an important point. Uh, John 10.29 says that no one is able to snatch us from the Father's hand, for example. Philippians 1.6 says that God will complete the good work he has begun in us. Uh, Romans 8:29 and 30 says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ and that everyone who God justifies will be glorified. Uh, Romans 8:39 says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Jude 1 and Jude 24 says that we're kept by Christ and that God keeps us from stumbling in our faith. And 1 John 2.19 says that those who appear to walk away from the faith, he has this comment, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so John says a genuine believer continues in the faith. Um, so the question is, why do we need these warnings not to depart from Christ then? If, if all who God saves will be glorified, why would believers be warned to, to make sure you cling uh, close to Christ? And, and the best answer for that, if you want to um, go a few chapters ahead to Second Peter, Peter um, gives us the answer to that, and it's, it's an important one. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter says this, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter says, if you will work at godliness, if you will pursue God and Christian virtue and all those things he's mentioned, knowledge and self-control and, and steadfastness, there's some results from that. He says in verse 8, it'll keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful, which is a good thing. Uh, then in verse 9, 
He says that if you don't do that, some people will have forgotten that they were cleansed from their sins. Pursuing a godly life gives you assurance. Not that you are assured by your goodness, but I think we all know if we look back at our life, if you're a believer, where you would have been had it not been for God and that you would not be a praying person, you would not be a Bible reading person, you would not be a person who lives sacrificially apart from the grace of God. And so living that way gives you some assurance as well. And, and he says, if you do that, you can be diligent to make your calling and election sure, not to God. God knows who is his. It makes your calling and election certain to you. Your uh, pursuing of godliness gives you assurance. And then finally he says, if you'll do that, there's a, a reward for godliness. He says, in this way, there will be richly uh, provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. Um, Sinclair Ferguson writes, high degrees of true assurance cannot be enjoyed by those who persist in low levels of obedience, which is what Peter's saying. Did you get that? I'm going to read that again because you might, you might have tuned out for a second. High degrees of true assurance cannot be enjoyed by those who persist in low levels of obedience. If you're a low-level obedient Christian, you will not have a high level of assurance. Um, so that's a good reason to pursue um, godliness. But make sure and I wanted to sort of pause after I said that, your salvation is not a reward for you being a good hanger-on or to God, that, that, that you, the better you cling, the more assurance you get because you're a person who holds on to Christ well. You are admitted to heaven because you are securely kept by God, not because you hold on really well. Um, Nevertheless, we are told to cling to Christ even if you're a believer. Pursue that. Pursue that closeness with him. Um, so to Hebrews um, chapter 4. We'll read the passage first. <clears throat> beginning in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help of need, time of need. There's two commands in that passage, two invitations, if you will. Um, they are to hold fast and to draw near. We are to hold fast to our confession, he says. And I would take that to mean the confession of Christ that a believer has made. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so these people have made a profession, some no doubt genuine, some perhaps not. But in either case, if it's a genuine profession, the writer of Hebrews is saying, hold on to that, cling to that, hold fast to your confession. And if 
you haven't yet made one, he's going to give us good reason uh, to make one. And then to draw near as well, to draw near to the throne of God. Um, we had the passage from John 15 about abiding, and I think it's very much this holding fast and drawing near is very similar to the concept of abiding. In John 15:5, Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the rest of this passage is really su to support those two thoughts. Um, that we should hold fast and we should draw near. Um, because some, as you recall, back in verse 2, had not done that. He said, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Um, you recall, of course, in Egypt, there were tens of thousands willing to come out of Egypt. There was a message of freedom and liberty in a promised land. And who doesn't want that, right? So they all came out of Egypt and then God gave his law and gave the guidelines for following him and what a relationship with him would look like. And a lot of people wanted the freedom, wanted the promised land, wanted out of slavery, didn't want so much the burden of God's law. And so, um, remember how many people made it into the promised land that came out of Egypt? Two. Not many. Um, So he wants us to fully embrace, to um, to draw near and to hold fast our confession. Um, he gives us three reasons for that. One perverse we'll look at in verse 14. The reason we should hold fast is because we have a high priest in heaven. You say, why is that important? That's a, an incredibly remarkable statement. Um, you remember on the Day of Atonement, and this is where our time in Leviticus will pay off because you are familiar with these things now. The high priest on the Day of Atonement went through the three areas of the temple. The animal was slain in the outer court. The blood was collected in a bowl. The high priest would go through the holy place, then ultimately into the holy of holies. That's all in Leviticus 16. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. Um, you recall in the furnishings of the tabernacle, there was no seat in the holy of holies. The high priest didn't sit down. There was, there was never a high priest who said, you know, it's really cool in here. I'm bringing a chair in and I'm going to hang out in the Holy of Holies. Have you guys seen the cherubim? Like this is incredible stuff. I'm just going to hang out in here for a while. He would die. Um, no doubt they remember Adab and Abihu, right? In, the, in I believe it's chapter 2. You didn't mess with God's tabernacle or the rules or the sacrifice. So much so... You recall the priests had little bells on the bottom of their robes, and apparently this wasn't commanded, but it was something they did anyway. The high priest would have a rope tied to his foot, um, and he would go in and he would sprinkle the blood on there, and the people outside would listen for those bells, and as long as the bells were jingling, he was fine. Um, 
But if the bells would stop, their thinking was, well, what happens if he somehow violates the laws of the sacrifice and God kills him dead in the holy place? None of us are allowed to go in there and get him, right? Because he's the only one allowed in there. He had to make a sacrifice for his own sin. And he was, the scripture doesn't say how long it took, but I suspect the whole process was 15 seconds, 30 seconds max. That's how much access to God was given in the Old Testament sacrificial system. One man for 15 seconds once a year. And so if the bells stopped, they would pull on the rope and they would get him out of there, right? Um, and I think the, the author of Hebrews wants us to think about the fact that you can only give people what you already possess yourself, right? You can't take people where you have never been, sometimes um, they say in business. And I was trying to think of an illustration. Let's say the leadership of Grace decided in 2023 that they really wanted people to be praying, that prayer was really important. We'd like people to pray two or three times a day. And so we really try to get commitment from everybody. Let's pray. And we're going to have prayer meetings at church Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And we would encourage you to come. And you come, but you notice the leadership's not here. They don't come. Now Luke would come. I'm just saying. Um, but let's say they didn't. And, and the messages they don't share about their own prayer life and... and what are the chances that the, ch that the church would get really on board and really committed to this? Not a lot, right? Leadership can't take you where they won't go themselves, right? Similarly, what does the worshiper want? Ideally, we want guilt-free, permanent access to God. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what I think when you think of heaven? Don't you think that that's what I want? I want to be in the presence of God forever, without interruption, without guilt, total openness. The high priest doesn't have that, so he, he can't give you what he doesn't have, right? And, and that will come, as we'll see, from the high priesthood of Jesus. By contrast, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So what's he saying here? That the, in the Jewish mind, there were kind of three levels to heaven. There was the first heavens, and scripture talks about birds and clouds being in the heavens. So that's kind of the first heavens. Then there was kind of the atmospheric sun, moon, and stars heaven, and, and that they occupied the second heaven. And then there was the third level of heaven, which was the abode of God. In 2 Corinthians 12.2, Paul talks about being caught up to the third heaven. I don't know if you recall that, but uh, it doesn't mean there's three places where God hangs out in the winter and one in the summer or anything. That just means that place where God lives. So the writer here tells us that Christ has passed through the heavens. Um, our great high priest went in his ascension through the atmosphere, as you read the book of Acts, you read about his ascension through the stellar heavens and into the heaven of heavens. The writer here says he passed through the heavens. He'll say later in, in the book of Hebrews, he presented his offering in the throne room of God there, his shed blood. 
But then something phenomenal. Christ stayed there. No high priest ever stayed in the Holy of Holies, right? He got in and he got out fast. Um, our high priest went, passed through the heavens, and he stayed. Scripture says he sat down. Um, no high priest ever did that. Um, the author of Hebrews will make a big deal about the fact that Christ sat down. Um, chapter 1, verse 3, speaking of Christ, says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In chapter 10, verse 12, He says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Uh, chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We have a great high priest who offered a single sacrifice and then sat down. The Jewish high priest offered their sacrifice year after year and could never bring people into that intimate communion with God. Christ offered one sacrifice, stayed in the holiness of God, which was really where he belonged. If you read John 1, right, he says in the beginning, um, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So his ascension is really a return to what he had all along. And you know what's remarkable? In, in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, he invites us to sit down with him. Revelation 3.20. Jesus said, and this is usually an evangelistic passage, but he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat down on my father's throne. So that's the first reason why you should hold fast to Christ is because he is where you want to be. He is in the heavens. He has uh, earned that right by virtue of being the Son of God and his perfect sacrifice. And um, so that's the first reason we should cling to him. Second, our high priest is sympathetic and sinless. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And I don't know about you, I have thought in weaker moments, um, but you know, Jesus is divine, right? He's the Son of God. He's sinless. Um, I'd like someone who understands me, who could be sympathetic with me because I fall. He never did. How can he understand my weakness and my sin, right? Um, but in Jesus' incarnation, he did not shield himself from the sinful life of people, right? You read the Gospels and he 
is there. Isaiah 53 says that he would be a man of sorrows. Um, nor does Jesus simply say, well, you know, pat us on the head and say they're there. Um, the word the writer here uses is a, he uses a double negative to, to emphasize this. You're any English teachers in the crowd, you tell your students don't use a double negative, but he does that on purpose, I think. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize, which means we have a high priest who is able to sympathize, right? Um, and the word there for sympathize means not only empathetic feelings, but also aid or help. Um, the word's only used one other time in the scripture in Hebrews 10.32, and it talks about having compassion on people who were in prison, and you visited them, and you helped them, and so Jesus isn't simply sympathetic emotionally, but he also comes to our aid, is what uh, the writer is saying. Um, he says that he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, which is a very general term. It can mean lots of things sometimes in scripture, sickness, temptation, poverty, imprisonment, social pressures, uh, sinfulness. But I think the writer uses a very general term on purpose to let us know that uh, Jesus is empathetic about the full range of suffering as a result of sin. So what does it mean that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are? You may think, well, I was tempted this afternoon to look at my, some inappropriate stuff on my cell phone. Jesus, he didn't, he didn't have that temptation. How can the writer say he's been tempted in every way that we are? Um, it more so deals with types and kinds of temptation than specific individual temptations. So in every area of life, Christ was tempted. He was tempted with wealth or power or hungry or comfort. The full gambit of uh, temptations to sin, our high priest uh, endured. Um, and he not only died for us, he also lived for us and lived a perfect life so his righteousness could be imputed to us, right? But you think, it's tempting to think sometime that Jesus doesn't know how bad my temptation is, right? I, I find temptation really strong. And Jesus, he, since he was sinless, he doesn't, he doesn't know what temptation is really like. I would say the opposite is true. The one who gives in to temptation quickly doesn't know the full force of temptation, right? There's a piece of chocolate cake in the fridge and you're thinking, hey, I shouldn't have it. I already had dinner and I already had one dessert, but maybe I'll go have that. No, okay, I will, right? And so how strong was the temptation? It, it, it wasn't very great, right? You gave in in two minutes. You never bore the full force of the temptation. I suggest to you, Christ understands the strength of temptation far greater than any of us because he never gave in. He lived a life of constant battle with temptation, but never compromised, never... Um, sin never took root in his heart. He never had a single thought, a single action, a, a sinful word. He never crossed that line. And as a result, I think no one can sympathize with us in temptation like Christ can. It's interesting to compare that to the high priest of Jesus' day. I'm always 
really stunned by the story in Matthew 27. If you wanted to turn to Matthew 27, verse 3 for a second. Um, Judas. Judas, I find uh, an interesting person to think about sometimes. You know, some commentators have suggested it might have merit, although it's a bit of speculation, so don't... um, don't take this as uh, um, what scripture says, but it's interesting to think about. Some people think that Judas really didn't want Jesus to be crucified, but that Jesus' ministry was going in a direction that Judas didn't want. He was helping the poor and he was healing and uh, what Judas perhaps as a zealot wanted was the overthrow of Rome and he wanted Jesus to get military and and he didn't seem to be going there and perhaps I could force God's hand a bit. If I sell him over to the Romans and he's tried and he's going to be crucified, well, God will have to step in then, right? He won't let his son go to a cross. So I'll, I'll get God to do it my way. I'll force God's hand a bit and then... Judas realizes, oh my goodness, it's, it's, it's not happening that way. And so there's a, not a saving repentance, but there's a remorse on the part of Judas. We read in Matthew 23, verse 3, and it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, so he, trying to force God to do things Judas' way, not that any of us have ever tried that or wanted that or done that, Right? But uh, apparently Judas did. He saw that Jesus was condemned in verse 1. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And of course the high priests, they deal in sin and counseling people with what to do about your sin, right? So what's their response? They said, what is that to us? Oh my goodness. These are the priests that deal with sin, that counsel people, that provide sacrifice. He, he comes to them and said, I'm guilty of sin, what do I do? And, and they say, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Um, so just, just a comparison of the ministry of Christ on our behalf. Um, the writer of Hebrews says, we have a sympathetic high priest who has been tempted uh, yet without sin. Um, And of course, Jesus knows how to conquer sin too, right? So when we go to him, we not only find one who is sympathetic, but one who knows uh, what it is to have victory and uh, will counsel us in that regard as well. Finally, verse 16, we have a high priest who is gracious and merciful. You know, in the Old Testament, well, let's just read verse 16. He says, let us with confidence then draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In the Old Testament, the throne of God is pictured as a very frightening place. Um, Consider a few verses. Psalm 97, verses 2 and 3. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. 
That's the picture of the throne of God. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 9 and 10. Daniel says, As I look, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The idea of drawing near the throne of God is, was incomprehensible to the Jewish worshiper. You recall when God gave his law in Exodus, it says in Exodus 19.12, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The message in the Old Testament was stay away from the throne of God. You don't want to get near the throne of God. You don't want to get near his presence. It is a fearful place. It is a dangerous place. Jesus' high priestly work transformed the throne of God from a frightening place to a place of invitation. Um, and you know, it's not that I don't want you to think it's not that the Old Testament God was scary and frightening and he just needed to chill out a little bit. That's not what scripture is saying at all. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. The problem was not God. The problem was sin. We, we were the problem. It is dangerous for a sinful person to approach the presence of God. Um, Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. But grace and mercy have come from our high priest who um, has not changed the nature of God at all for us. God's nature is still angry about sin and um, acceptance of righteousness, but in Christ we are granted perfect righteousness. It's no wonder in Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says, I tell you, many prophets and righteous men have desired to see the things that you see. Um, and in this passage in verse 16, uh, not to get too heavy into the languages, but when he says, let us with confidence draw near, um, the draw near is in the present tense, which means continually drawing near, keep drawing near, keep drawing near. It's meant to be something that we continually do. And we're to do that with confidence, he says. That word can also mean freedom of speech. So when you go to the throne of God, what do I talk about? He's saying, talk about whatever you want. It's, it's complete freedom and openness in the presence of God. Um, so three wonderful reasons why we should hold fast to our confession of Christ and then uh, draw near to him. How are you and I doing on that? Uh, just by way of conclusion, I, I, I always love what Paul says in Philippians 3.13. Um, Paul says, this one thing I do. Could you say that about your life? If someone said, what's your... What's your life all about? What's, what's important to you? Um, 
I would probably say, well, you know, I got about 20 things on my bucket list. Um, I'm not ticking them off very quickly. Um, Paul says, this one thing I do, my life is really about one thing. Um, 3.13, he says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, in Christ I find everything I need. He is all the love, all the grace, all the mercy, the wisdom, the strength, the sympathy, the encouragement I will ever need. That, so my goal is to be like Christ and to pursue him. That's my one thing. Um, and trust, um, you have a little bit of motivation in our passage in, um, in Hebrews to do that uh, this morning. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ, for his priesthood in our behalf. Thank you that he has transformed your throne from a place that's dangerous uh, to a sinner, to, to one that is um, a seat of mercy and openness uh, for those who are forgiven. Not that we have any right to it, Lord, but that uh, Christ has a right to your presence. And, and as those who belong to him, he invites us to partake in that and um, help us to do that, Lord. We know you long to uh, have our presence there. You invite us there. And, and so um, it seems strange for uh, those who know we have failed to be invited and to go there with boldness and yet uh, that is uh, the grace and the mercy that Christ has um, accomplished on our behalf. We're so thankful him, for him this morning. And uh, we pray in his wonderful name. Amen.